Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, the mind sweep first is really, it's like, look, what's got your attention that you at some point think you need to decide or do something about, but you can't finish it the moment you're thinking of it. Yeah. You walk into your kitchen and say, wow, I got a bunch of spices that are out of control. Or you walk into your office and go, oh my God, you know, I've inherited an office that's not cleaned up. It's still got a bunch of, you know, crap from the previous guy who was in this office. Or you walk into your life and say, gee, I don't know if I want to be married to this person or not. <laughs> or you walk out out of your balcony or your porch and see there's a light burnout. There's a light. Any of those are things that have your attention. It will start to spin inside your consciousness unless you either finish them in that moment. But if you don't finish them in that moment, that spin won't stop. And so the idea is to be able to externalize some trigger of what those things are that some part of you trust you'll see soon enough that your brain gets to let it go. Uh, but it mm -hmm. won't do it otherwise. And you can fool me, but yeah. you can't fool your own mind. If you told yourself, I need to change that light bulb or I might want to get a divorce, those things will wake you up at three o'clock in the morning and take up about the same amount of psychic space, which is kind of weird. You know, that is weird. Yeah, but it's true. Because that part of you, that part of you in your psyche, when you're just filing it in your head, that place has no sense of past or future and it has very little sense of priority. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. David, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So it, it's funny, I don't think I've ever used this term before, but you're effectively the godfather of modern productivity. Uh, I don't think there's anybody who's listening to this who has no idea who you are, especially if they do knowledge work. Uh, and we will get into the whole getting things done framework. But before we get into that, I wanted to start by asking, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have shaped who you become and what you've done with your life? Uh, to pay attention to what's... Um what I really want to do and what I seem mm -hmm. to be good at and attracted to and, and go do something about that. Yeah. It, I mean, did that start really early in your life? Like, yeah, did they, yeah. No, how, I, and I, how did I, that I the, well, the two things I wanted to do when I was a, like five years old, I did not want to be a cowboy or, or a cop or a fireman. I, I wanted to be a horticulturist and grow flowers or a comedian. Uh huh. And you know, I would, I would come into the, I would come into the room where I, my aunts and uncles or friends would be over. They were playing bridge or whatever. And I would recite a Bugs Bunny album that I had memorized. I mean, at age six or seven. And they just thought I was totally hilarious or whatever. So my mom, my dad died when I was young. I was, I was nine. And, and 
uh, my mom kind of raised me uh, and my older brother by herself. But she decided that she would give me acting lessons because there was actually a, quite an elegant um, um, summer theater and, and uh, you know, amateur theater in Shreveport, Louisiana, where I was growing up. Uh, and mm. they were offering acting lessons for kids. So she, as a birthday present for me, I think when I was 10 or 11, so she gave me acting lessons. So, and it turned out that they were doing a, a, a major event, the King and I, for a whole summer, they were opening a million dollar playhouse, which was a lot back in 1955 or no, 50, whatever. Yeah. That's when that was. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. I turned out, I got the part of Lewis in the King and I, so I got to spend a summer you know, on stage, you know, with semi-professional, it was semi-professional. They had professionals from New York and from Houston or other places that were playing some of the lead roles. So I got to play, I got to experience what it was like to sort of be on stage and have all kinds of people's attention and to meet some pretty sophisticated folks, at least for the culture I was growing up in. So that was, mm -hmm. you know, so that was a great example of, um, you know, my mom noticed something I was good at and said, you know, let me help support, you know, what that's about. So, yeah. Why do you think more parents don't notice that in their kids? Uh, you know, I mean, I grew up in an Indian culture, so, you know, and I've talked about this on the show before, we're kind of force-fed certain career options, even if we show interest in certain things, uh, and we spend, you know, the next 40 years of our lives trying to undo that. And so I wonder, you know, why that is, and, and you know, what, what would you tell parents who are listening about that? I don't know. You know, my mom still had the same sort of, David, go get a degree. Don't, you know, I know you want to be an actor or maybe a dancer or you might, might want to do some of that other stuff, but you better go, go get a college degree so you can always make sure you have a good job because she, she was a depression baby, you know, uh -huh. and, and so there was, you know, huge sensitivities about making sure you had financial whatever. And I know the Indian culture, at least from what I can tell, is quite competitive and everybody's, you know, uh, you know need to make sure you're on the right track and there's only a few slots at the top. and you know, all the parents want to make sure their kids get all those great opportunities to do that. So I think that's understandable. Um, yeah. And, you know, I grew up in a culture where there weren't a whole lot of other options. Consultant, what's that? You know, <laughs> yeah. you know if you were smart, you either became a teacher, a doctor, or an attorney. You know, uh -huh. if you weren't quite so smart, you, I don't know, or you didn't quite have those aspirations, you sold insurance or sold cars. That was about yeah. it. You know, so, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you know, I, I think my mom, my mom was a pretty radical person herself, even though she was in, in many ways quite conservative. She was one of the first graduate students at the University of Wisconsin, um, you know, and she'd grown up in Louisiana and she was, you know, graduated from Louisiana Tech uh, College. Yeah. And then she got a scholarship and, you know, that was a, that was a radical for, a, a, you know, a girl of her age. She was like 17 or 18, you know, and this is like the, uh, what I guess in the, in the thirties. Uh, yeah. And so she was pretty radical herself and brought us up in a kind of a, a you know, an open environment to, you know, in terms of both our religions as well as what we, what we were doing. So she was kind of a, a um, for her age and her, and her time, she was, you know, a bit out of the box. So I think she mm -hmm. wanted to, supporting that, you know, for us too. So you mentioned that your dad passed away at nine and I wonder as a nine-year-old, how you process an experience like that, um, you know, what decisions you made about your life at that age and also how your uh, perspective on that loss changed with age. 
You know, I, we, we didn't have really have much of an emotional relationship. He was quite ill for most of my, uh, you know, up until then. And, uh, so we didn't really have that close a relationship. Uh, uh-huh. so it was not frankly, quite frankly, it was not that big a deal. The biggest deal wow. was how much people were suffering around me about it. And, you know, mm-hmm. that was the thing that was most painful to me. Um, yeah. I just went, Oh, okay. So he's off doing other things or whatever. I didn't know quite have that consciousness at that time, but, uh, you know, it was, you know, I, I guess you can call it the, the karma was done between us, uh, perhaps that I didn't have yeah. that kind of relationship and I never really looked too much for a father figure. You know, after that, I was pretty self-contained though. I, a lot of the mentors I found were men you know, that had Uh a certain thing. And then I got, I was attracted to what they were doing and what they were teaching and what I could learn from them. So maybe that was, you know, how that got transferred. Yeah. So what did you do after high school that, that led you down this path? Because I, you know, I, like I said, when I was looking at your Wikipedia entry, I was like, holy crap. I'm like, is it true that you had 35 professions before age 35? (laughs) Well, uh, I I guess, you know, one uh, interesting little piece of there were there are two things that sort of broadened my horizons. You know, growing up in the fifties and early sixties in Shreveport, Louisiana, weren't a whole lot of horizons out there available <laughs> that obvious. Um, however, I had a half sister. She was at my my dad had been married in a previous marriage and uh, and had a daughter who was quite a bit older than me. But she was we were actually very good friends and and uh, she she was really great and highly supportive. She had run off. She'd escaped from a Catholic school and had run off to St. Louis and married a, an Italian paint, painter. Uh, you know, and this is like way back when that was radical stuff to do. And then they got divorced, but they're very good friends. She married a very good friend of theirs, a man named John Clellan Holmes. Well, John Clellan Holmes, if anybody wants to go Google that, was one of the one of the sort of most intellectual chroniclers of the Beat Generation. He and my sister Shirley were good friends with Kerouac and Ginsburg and, and all of that group of people. And actually, John, my brother-in-law, and, and Kerouac coined the word beat, you know, watching somebody walk down Central Park with that kind of a beat to their walk. And they coined that term. So uh, my mom said, you know, after my dad died, she took me and my older brother on a, on a road trip up to visit, you know, Shirley and John in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, where they lived. You know, John's great great grandfather was Oliver Wendell Holmes. So this was, you know, kind of a very sophisticated old New England sort of culture and very hip. These guys were, you know, again, new the hippest of the hip, you know, at the time. And so I've got I got a window into a world that was <laughs> you probably couldn't have found it back at that time in the, you know, in nineteen fifty five, fifty six, a hipper, you know, culture or group of people, you know, to meet and to engage with. And so yeah. that kind of opened my window a whole lot. And then we had an exchange student in our high school through AFS, American Field Service, you know, where, you know, kids came over for a year and spent a year in an American high school, lived with an American family. And it worked the other way around. There were Americans that were also invited to spend a year abroad. And so I applied for that and I, and I got it. So I spent, you know, I kind of took an extra year between my junior and senior year in high school and actually lived with a Swiss family outside of Zurich and went to a Swiss school and you know, I was a block from the Kunsthaus in Zurich where I'd go down and look at Monet water lilies. And I was three blocks from Cafe Odeo where Dadaism started, where Jung did a lot of his work. And, you know, this was, you know, <laughs> a, a very big window open into a whole new world that was quite intriguing to me. So when I came mm-hmm. back, 
I had an interest in in studying in the humanities. Before that, I thought, well, maybe I'll just be a lawyer. Or stuff. I kind of like models. I was like sort of understanding what are some of the some of the the invisible things that that make things work. So I was always sort of attracted to that kind of stuff. That's why my first profession of, of my thirty five was a, a, a magician. At age five, uh-huh. on the on the sidewalks of Palestine, Texas, where I charged five cents and did magic tricks. So, <laughs> you know that, that, that you know that kind of in a way that's kind of an iconic you know image of the rest of my life. You know? yeah. uh, so, so, so what? So then, um, I, so I went decided my brother had gone to Yale on a National Merit Scholarship and had flunked out because. He'd been shunted into math and science. This was the age of Sputnik, where any smart kids were supposed to go into math and science to compete with the Russians. But mm-hmm. he was really a jazz musician, so he wound up being a DJ on the Yale radio station and, and then flunked out. And so when I, he was four years older than me, so when I came to sort of college age, I thought, well, you know, I, don't, I think I don't want the, 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 the megaversity experience. I think I'd rather look for something other interesting. And at the time, there were colleges doing some recruiting and I got recruited actually by a small little college in Sarasota, Florida that just started up, uh, no grades, design your own education, huge, sophisticated faculty, small student body, um, you know, uh, live on in, in dormitories designed by IM pay, you know, uh, in the old ringling mansion and, and, and territory on the on Sarasota Bay. I was like, well, that sounds pretty cool. And so, you know, got a scholarship to go there. So I wound up going three years and getting a BA in three years and, and got turned on. I thought I was initially in sort of intrigued by philosophy, but I wound up discovering that most philosophers seem to seem to start with an original hypothesis and then prove their original hypothesis using their original hypothesis. I thought, (laughs) well, that's kind of a circle thing. Uh, but what was more interesting was the, why the philosophers used that h- hypothesis. And I had a great friend, he turned out to be a great friend, he was my academic advisor, the head of the history department, who turned me on to intellectual history, the history of thought, history mm-hmm. of culture. So I wound up being an, an intellectual history major and then applied to both Berkeley and, and Columbia, got into Berkeley, hadn't been to California, had a girlfriend who'd graduated from Berkeley. So I said, what the heck? So. I was in American. Uh, I was in graduate studies in American intellectual history in Berkeley in 1968. So wow. there was a. So that was, you know, that was that actually, believe, believe it or not, that's actually a very short version of still a very long story, even up to that point. <laughs> well, I, I still have lots of questions about the story. So I, you know, it's funny. So one of the things that made me want to ask you is about education in its current form, because you seem to have been educated in a way that is very different than the way sort of our standard. Even people who are educated at the highest level are, are educated. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like the linear sort of trajectory that we put people on starting in high school. So I wonder, what is your view on on modern education? I don't. I can't say that I really have one. Yeah. You know, I think it's so unique. I think the best education is to start to understand. You know, give give kids, you know, the opportunity to go where they feel led to go, and being able to mm-hmm. do what they feel like they want to do. You know, that said, there's a whole lot of value. I mean, a lot of, a lot of companies understandably hire people with a degree because if you can hang out and get a degree, at least shows that you can hang into something that you hate, <laughs> you know, to get some sort of something, some sort of a completion at the end of that. 
which is a lot more than what a lot of kids, you know, learn how to do till later in life. You know, so there isn't, there is some value to just having some sort of, even, even if it's an artificial structure to hang into that, if you're at least interested enough to stick with it, you know, to complete Mm -hmm. something in that regard. So I think there's just the completion aspect of any kind of educational model is, is valuable in and of itself. That said, you know, I love, you know, going to a school that had no grades and designed my own education and no rules and, we kind of made it up and, you know, they gave us the opportunity to sort of decide how to, how to run our own lives, which again, you know, a little iconic for, you know, what I wound up doing professionally. Yeah. Berkeley in the sixties or in the time that you were there, you know, like I remember I would see these pictures from Berkeley and, and, you know, I, I was a Berkeley undergrad, as I said before, you know, we hit record here. And, and sometimes I look at the experience and I'm like, did I miss out? Did I, did I not treat this as the experience that I could have? Did I not get all of it? that I could have because of how I chose to treat it as nothing more than a, a path between me and employment. Uh, it, what do you think was different then uh, than now in terms of the culture around an institution like Berkeley? I don't know. Berkeley was always a little crazy. Still is always a little crazy. <laughs> I think they, I think they just, I just read they decided to change the name on the, on the manholes to people holes or, or person holes, you know? So, <laughs> wow. you know, it, it, it's always been sort of on the, the bleeding edge of, you know, kind of strange radical things to do yeah. as a culture and, and for a town to actually agree to do stuff like that is kind of cool. So then it was always very much like that. But again, 68, that, that was heady times to be there. That was on strike, shut it down. That was Reagan was governor. That was the national guard. That was, you know, they shot a kid in the park, you know, that was huge, you know, at least at the time. And, and, you know, black Panthers and all of that stuff was going on at the time. And I knew a bunch of the, my girlfriend at the time that I wound up being my first wife was, had, had, had graduated from Berkeley. She'd been arrested with Mario Savio on the steps of Sproul Hall, you know, as an anthropology major. She was, you know, very hip, very smart, very, very cool. And, and she knew a whole bunch of those folks, but they were, they were personality wise, they, they really sucked. They really were not that very interesting and not people I particularly wanted to hang out with. They were but not about so much about them or, or even about the culture that they were involved in, but it was just a heady time to be there. And I, I was kind of more of a participant observer than I was a participant of all that. I just found yeah. it, you know, sort of fascinating. I, I sort of, I wound up getting sort of onto my own trip as you, you know, may have read exploring a lot yeah. of things, both spiritually and otherwise. And at some point, I realized, you know, I was studying people who seemed to be enlightened. And then at some point I said, you know, I really want my own, but I didn't, I got an intuitive sense that academia was not where I was going to find that. So that's when mm-hmm. I just jumped ship and, you know, I had a, I had a 3.9, you know, a, a four average in the first two quarters at Berkeley. And one day just said, screw it. I'm not, I'm done. And I never walked back. I have no idea what kind of records they may have of that. I just said, <laughs> Uh, it was one of those radical sort of decisions to make that just kind of came. I don't know where it came from, but it was like, I'm not doing this. There's, there's another, there's another world to explore. There's a lot, there's other stuff to do and I'm not getting it in that environment. Yeah. It's funny because I, I remember I, I went with a friend when I yeah, I did graduate school at Pepperdine and I took a friend to Berkeley to visit and there was some guy lying on the floor and, and you know on the cement and sprawl and you know people protesting is extremely that guy's lying on the floor and we just walked past. I said, Yeah, that happens every day here. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you sure. really you become desensitized to like it's like, oh, there's a protest going on about something almost every day, mm-hmm. I felt like. Yeah. 
So, you know, you mentioned, uh, you, you briefly alluded to a trip and, and, you know, as I said before we hit record, like I, I remember stumbling on your Wikipedia entry and it said that you'd been, you know, uh, using heroin and were briefly institutionalized, uh, after finishing graduate school. Like I, can you, can you talk, talk about that and, and take us there? Like, what well, you have that? to, you have to roll the tape back to those times. And yeah. even, even in college, you know, I, I, I smoked a lot of grass, a lot of great hash and, and, you know, took mescaline, took LSD, but not to really to escape. It was more to explore. I was just fascinated. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to know what was on the other side. You know, and that was yeah. the days when that was, those were sort of potentially gateways into new consciousness or new awarenesses or other things like that. So I didn't do it to escape my world. I did it to explore new worlds. So that was really mm-hmm. what most all of that was about. Uh, and I had then quite a number of experiences, not necessarily tied to the drugs themselves, but, uh, but otherwise that I would consider now they were, they were, I was tapping into what some, some of the higher sort of spiritual realities were, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, based upon things that I was exploring, things I was looking at, people I was meeting and so forth. And I, and some of my own explorations and it just turned out, God, what do I do with this? And it created some somewhat strange behavior. So. You know, I, I did some fairly awkward things and then they put me away for a short period of time. But it was enough to teach me that, gee, uh, I don't think I want to engage in awkward behaviors kind of railing against the world because they don't get the truths that I see. And so I think mm-hmm. I'm going to enter into a high state of cooperation. So, again, I've never really been cured. I'm as crazy as I ever was. But uh, you're, you're, looking <laughs> at a, you're looking at a high state of cooperation, right? Well, I don't think anybody I interviewed, uh, I've interviewed on this show would not be qualified as batshit crazy <laughs> somewhere, right? Because I honestly think that crazy and, uh, you know, accomplishments seem to be birds of a feather. I remember my, my friend Matt Monroe always says to me, he's like, fucked up people change the world. And I, I thought it was like, that is such an interesting statement. But then he he outlined his thesis for me and I said, yeah, yeah, that's true. I've interviewed Elon Musk's ex-wife and, you know, uh, you can't be normal to do these kinds of things. Well, I, you know, I was Which, reading... You know, I'd read all of Zen. I'd read all of Suzuki and Alan Watts by the time I'd finished high school. And then R.D. Wow. Lang and, you know, all the people writing about, you know, crazy is not necessarily crazy. As a matter of fact, uh-huh. you know, crazy may be the most sane people you ever met. You know, and so I, I very much read, I, you know, I had that reality. You know, I, yeah. I knew what it was. And luckily I was able to find soon enough without being, you know, totally self-destructive. So I've never, you know, I, I snorted smack for you know, a year and a half or whatever. And I never experienced any kind of withdrawal other than a bad cold, you know, when I stopped. Wow. I mean, and once I got the data spiritually that, hey, drugs were just, you know, they kind of gave you a glimpse into the other side, you know, over there, but it's a glass wall. You're going to have to come back and walk back around and come around the other side. So I just mm-hmm. stopped everything. I haven't done anything recreational drug-wise since 1971. So, wow. <laughs> you know, did plenty up to then, <laughs> but you know, so I, I knew what it, I knew what all that was about. But that that yeah. was not the importance. So my priority was really to you know find God, truth in the universe, and uh-huh. discovered that was a that was a a limited shortcut. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I guess to me, I think there's there's a combination of both uh, fate and irony involved in, in uh, what you chose to do, because it seems like you had all these different things that you did. And yet I think your work largely centers around teaching people how to you know, focus more than anything else. Uh, so how in the world do you get from 35 different professions before the age of 35 to effectively being the godfather of productivity? <laughs> well, like, I, I would, first of all, I'm the laziest guy you ever met. Uh, so I, I would not ever trust anybody to teach productivity who's not as lazy as I am because they won't have studied, you know, as, as many things as I have to find out how, with how, with how little effort you can produce a result. Mm-hmm. Right now, uh, that said, too, you know, come on. One of the first things I did when I dropped out of graduate school was to then study the martial arts. So I got a black belt in karate. By the way, while I was <laughs> doing all the other stuff, you know, so. Uh, and talk about a place to learn focus, you know, 
standing, you know, on top of three inches of wood that your hand needs to go through. Believe me, you don't want to think, you don't want to focus on being hurt. You want to focus on being all the way through the boards. I started to train myself and got trained in a lot of, you know, focus techniques simply by through the martial arts training. And then I also then, you know, wound up getting involved in discovering, you know, a lot more information about sort of the spiritual worlds and how people, you know, then navigated those in a very practical way. And that had a lot to do also with meditation and, you know, and, and focus inwardly. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, that was not a foreign concept to me at all. And so I was more interested in the inner world and the inner work than outer stuff. But again, I had to pay the rent. So I looked around and said, well, what can I do to pay the rent while I'm doing all this inner exploration stuff? And turned out I had some friends and people I knew in my network who were, who seemed to know what they wanted to do. And they were starting businesses and running, you know, having small little enterprises themselves. And so I wound up being a good number two guy. So I wound up, you know, helping a couple of guys start a New Orleans style restaurant in LA and uh, helped a guy run a landscape company and had a vitamin distributorship and sold mopeds. And, but I would just go in and say, well, what are they doing? How much easier could we make this? Now they call that process yeah. improvement, but I was just lazy. I said, right. you know, come on, there got to be some easier way to get those bills out or some easier way to, to manage the crew on the landscape, whatever, that whatever. So I just, that, I just couldn't help, you know, looking at those kinds of things. And then I'd help fix it and then I get bored. <laughs> so then I, so then I'd leave and go find another gig. And then I discovered they actually call those people something and they pay them called consultant. You know? mm. So I couldn't spell yeah. it. Now I are one. So 1981 hung out my shingle, Allen Associates. Right. And then said, okay, well, how, maybe I can, maybe I can somehow make a living just project by project if I do this. And mm. again, that was not something that was in my repertoire before, but I, I started to meet people given some of the work I was doing in personal growth and self-development. I was part of the insight seminar group that was that sort of grew out of the best actualizations, life spring, you know, sort of personal development, personal growth stuff, very powerful, very yeah. wonderful stuff. And I became a, you know, a facilitator, but th- that was all avocational. They, they weren't paying people to do that. It was all, you know, voluntary. But anyway, mm-hmm. given all that, I had a network of people, some of whom were pretty sophisticated consultants. So I wound up trying to find out, okay, what kind of model could I have in case it wasn't clear how to help somebody that I might want to do my consulting business with? It'd be nice to know some models. There are some model I could pull out of my back pocket in case it wasn't clear that I could walk them through that model and it would improve their condition. So I got very hungry for that, finding models that would work for anybody, no matter what the business was, uh, you know, or, or what they were doing. And at the same time, yeah. you know, I sort of discovered through my meditative and spiritual and martial arts practices how cool it was to have a clear head. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, then I, I, so I started both looking for model, my, as my life was getting more professional and complex, I discovered how easy it was for my head to get, <laughs> you know, uh, distracted. I said, let me find some techniques for myself and then wound up very long story, very short, but I wound up having a couple of mentors that taught me some key pieces of what then later, later on 30 years later would be called GTD uh, yeah. and discovered, God, they work for me. And then I turned around and used the same practices with my uh, consulting clients and it worked for them too. It created mm-hmm. stability, created control, created more of a sense of focus, created more space to focus on meaningful things. I mean, all those good gold, golden goodies, essentially. And so I went, wow, that's really cool. So th- that became sort of the core of my own consulting practice. 
And then, you know, head of human resources for Lockheed saw what I was doing and said, God, we need that in our whole corporation. Can you design a training doing what you're doing that we can reach a whole lot of people instead of one at a time? So I designed a, a workshop, a two-day personal productivity workshop uh, for Lockheed, 1983-84, and it worked. So I found myself thrust into the corporate training world. God, who'd have thought? If you told me in 1968 in Berkeley I was going to be in the corporate <laughs> training world, I'd say, and what are you smoking? You know, come on. Give me a break. Yeah. But it turned out yeah. that was the ripest audience uh, for what I had to offer, what I'd learned, mm -hmm. and they were willing mm -hmm. to pay for it. And so I you know, wound up creating kind of a boutique consulting and training company and a couple of partners that came in and out you know, over the next you know, 10 or 15 years. And it was mostly just boutique. I, did, I wasn't particularly aspirational or entrepreneurial. I was more of an educator and a motivator, I guess, than anything else. You know, just finding out what I found and loved having an opportunity and a, and a platform to be able to share that with people that, that work. Mm -hmm. you, you, without fail, if you capture, clarify, organize, reflect on anything that's got your attention, you're going to be more productive and have more clear space to do whatever the cool things are you want to do. And so, so it took me a long time to, to discover that, that that was unique and nobody else seemed to have done it. That's when, yeah. I, that's when I wrote the book. So, you know, I, I want to get into to all of those things, but there's one other thing I want to ask you before we do that. Uh, I think to me, one of the things, and maybe this is just a gradual byproduct of, of sort of your life experience, but it seems like you've undergone a pretty radical identity shift from sort of, you know, person who was experimenting with drugs, you know, messing with things like heroin and 35 jobs before you're 35 to be this person who is basically, like I said, I mean, David Allen and productivity are kind of synonymous in a lot of ways. So I wonder, you know, what is it that leads to that kind of an identity shift internally for somebody? Because I think what I keep finding when I talk to people who come here is that if an internal identity shift of some sort doesn't occur, you could change everything external, but it's always going to go back to the way it was before. Well, yes and no, at least in my case, if you look yeah. back at age five, <clears throat> why was I interested in being a magician? I loved the fact that that there is a world you can't see that affects what we can see. And if you mm -hmm. can get a hold of what's driving in the inner or of our invisible world, that's, that's essentially driving and dictating what's happening in the material world. Wow. You could make stuff move without having to move. <laughs> How cool would that be? Right. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of, of being able to get a hold of something internally that then had an effect externally without it fail that made things happen better, easier, more elegantly, and opened up space to, to have more, you know, elegant and rich experience in your life. I said, how cool is that? So in a way, that never changed. So it, it, it took a lot of different forms, as you can obviously tell, you know, as I was, yeah. go, as I was going along. But I, I, and sure, yeah, I went through, you know, I've been through 50 years of spiritual and personal growth and all that stuff. So yeah. Uh, it wasn't you know just a long string of epiphanets not one big wake up one morning and i'm a different person you know <laughs> yeah, um, yeah i'm still kind of the same guy if you've met me when i was 12 though i didn't really know who i was and didn't wasn't certainly as comfortable in my own skin you know uh -huh. back then and i was a real people pleaser you know i was I, I hated conflict and so i was i learned how to sort of play everybody's game so that i didn't have to come into conflict with anybody or anything you know i would get I've had an aunt and uncle that would yell at each other at playing bridge and I'd get sick to my stomach and you know, I couldn't stand any of that. 
So, Mm -hmm. you know, learning how to sort of cooperate with the world, I didn't know who I was. So I lost me or there was never a consciousness of, well, who's David? You know, what does he want to do in there? So it was a lot of years of my own self-development process to find out, well, what does David really want? You know, no matter what other people think he should want. And so Mm -hmm. I I suppose, you know, the big transformation was the day I decided not to go back to graduate school that next morning and say, wait a minute, that's not all the way up until then was sort of doing the, my picture of what was supposed to be the hippest, coolest, neatest thing to do. I was pretty hip and cool, actually, (laughs) you know, given all of that. So I had a lot of reference points about how to create a nice picture of what hip and cool and, and great would be. But at some point I went, that's not me. There's something else I need to go for. There's something else I need to do. And I think taking that step was probably maybe to what you're, to your point, maybe that was the step, you know, that, yeah. that, that was, that would, that indicated my willingness to follow sort of my own inner path versus the outer path. Yeah. Well, let's get into the whole getting things done framework. Uh, you know, you called, you said capture, clarify, organize, reflect, engage. But there's one thing that you wrote in the book, which I wanted to ask you about, because uh, one, I happen to agree with it. I mean, I've written posts about this myself. Uh, you said this must be an external system, not your, you know, not in your head, which the brain scientists have concluded is a lousy office. And I, I wrote a piece saying your brain is a terrible place to store information. But um, you being who you are, I wonder, you know, what is your research shown about this and why is that matter? Why does that matter? I didn't do the research. I've read the research. Okay. So, okay. you know, right. I, I'm too lazy to do all that research. God, that's you know, huge <laughs> yeah. amounts of stuff. But, you know, now a good friend, Teo Compernoli, who wrote Brain Chains, you know, he's, he, he curated 650 uh, studies and research studies in the last 10 or 15 years on in cognitive science about the nature of the brain. And, you know, he went when he wrote the book. Interesting, when Teo and I met each other, he's an elegant guy in Brussels, and you know, we met. He said, well, David, interesting. He spent 30 years in academia and what he came up with, the conclusions are the same thing that I came up with 30 years later in the, on the streets. I think mm-hmm. maybe you could come up and maybe you could say that the success I've had is because I've never had a traditional course in business psychology or time management in my life. Yeah. Mine is all street smarts or street, ex- right. street experience. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to actually talking about each of these concepts. So let's get into capture. I think that capture is one of those things that I, one of the things I have always said to people is nobody has a shortage of ideas. They just lack the discipline to capture them. Uh, you know, and I'm, people are always like, how do you consistently produce written content? And I said, well, I have an idea repository where I am always writing things down for blog post ideas, even if they're half baked, but you give sort of three things in this capture idea, right? An in-tray, a capture tool, and a mind sweep. Can you talk about what those are? Sure. Well, the mind sweep first is really, it's like, look, what's got your attention that, that you at some point think you need to decide or do something about, but you can't finish it the moment you're thinking of it. Yeah. You walk into your kitchen and say, wow, that. The, I got a bunch of spices that are out of control or you walk into your office and go, Oh my God, you know, I've inherited an office that's not cleaned up. It's still got a bunch of, you know, crap from the previous guy who was in this office. Or, you know, you walk into your life and say, gee, I don't know if I want to be married to this person or not, <laughs> you know? So in, and or you walk out out of your balcony or your porch and see there's a light burnout. So anything, <laughs> any of those you know, are things that have your attention. It will start to spin inside your consciousness unless you either finish them in that moment. But if you don't finish them in that moment, that spin won't stop. And so the idea is to be able to externalize some trigger of what those things are that some part of you trust you'll see soon enough that your brain gets to let it go. 
uh, mm-hmm. but it won't do it otherwise. And you can fool me, but you can't fool your own mind. In terms of if you told yourself, I need to change that light bulb or I might want to get a divorce. You know, I, mm-hmm. you, those things will wake you up at three o'clock in the morning and take about, take about, up about the same amount of psychic space, which is kind of weird. You that know, is weird. Yeah, but it's true. Cause that part of you, that part of you in your psyche, when you're just filing it in your head, that has, that place has no sense of past or future. And it has very little sense of priority or relationships mm-hmm. because the brain did not evolve to remember, remind, prioritize, or manage relationships with more than four things. It does what it does brilliantly, which is in the present time, use long-term pattern recognition and, and, and long-term memory and pattern recognition where you go, oh, well, that's probably a tiger coming over there and there are berries in that bush. There's a thunderstorm coming. I hear my baby crying. That's all present mm-hmm. tense. And your brain does that brilliantly. And yet you go to the store to buy lemons and you come back with six things and no lemons. It's like, <laughs> yeah, what happened? That- what happened? No, well, you just try to use your brain as your office and it's a crappy office. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that makes perfect sense. Let's get into clarify. You talk about a two-minute rule, um, this empty tray, and, and email in particular is one of the things I wanted to ask you about because, I mean, your work predates sort of social media, the internet, email. So I really wonder how you think about all of these things, uh, you know, when it comes to distraction and all that. Do you only take out part of your garbage? No, of course not. Then why do you leave a bunch of email in your in-tray? You know? Wow. There's a really simple way to look at it. I've never thought about it that way before. Yeah. Let me just take out the stinky part of the garbage. Let the other stuff lie there. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. You know, grow up. There's no difference. Yeah. I mean, or, or I stop you in the hall and say, gee, dude, you know, would you handle this for me? What's the difference between me sending you an email or a WhatsApp about that versus me talking to you about that? Zero. Mm-hmm. Just inputs yeah. that you allow into your ecosystem. And it's just, yeah, it, you know, what's happened with the digital flood is just speed and volume. That's all. No uh-huh. difference in the, 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 the model or the methodology. And, you know, yeah. in, in 50 years, we land on Jupiter. You still need an in basket to capture stuff you might need to do about the jet engine out there. And you're still going to have to decide what's the next action on that. You're still going to have to organize some reminder of that for the right person or into the right system that it sees it at the right time. So, duh. Mm-hmm. You know, what's, what's, what's not universal about this model? I didn't make this up. I recognized it. Mm. Wow. You know, come on. Have you ever had your kitchen or your cooking area out of control? Yeah, it's a disaster. I hate it. What's the first thing you notice? What's not right? Yeah. Right? What's off? What's not on cruise uh-huh. control? Right? That's called the capture. Recognize what something needs to be done or decided about it. Right? Then what'd you do? Then you clarified, oh, that's spices, not where they, that, that's a dirty dish. Oh, that's clean. Oh, that's good food. Oh, that's crappy food. Then what'd you do? You put crappy food where crappy food goes. You put the spices where spices go. You put the good food back in the fridge. You organize. Then what'd you do? You step back, look at the whole scene and say, hmm, guest coming over in 25 minutes. Let me pull out butter and melt it. So you did capture, clarify, organize, reflect, and engage. So I didn't make this up. I said, that's how you, that's how you engage with any situation if you want to get it clear and focused and in control. Mm-hmm. So in the organized section, you broke this up into three sort of key components, right? Actionless calendars and projects. And you know, like I, I think about this in, in a couple of different ways, you know, between the fact that I you know, write a blog, run the podcast, uh, write books, I, I'm planning a conference. Like I had three or four different projects. And I wonder how you think about sort of the limitations on, on how much somebody can do in one day. Basically, how do people screw this up is really where I'm going. 
they don't capture everything, so they don't trust either their system or their brain. They don't clarify exaction actions and outcomes, so they're sitting there staring at stuff that's still reminding them there's stuff they need to decide and 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 do, and so they feel overwhelmed because they don't have the energy to do that right then. They don't have a trusted system that they look at consistently that has the whole inventory of their gestalt of all their commitments. So then, number four, they then engage. They then you know, they don't look at the whole totality of what that gestalt is and all the contents of their commitments and the actions embedded in them. And therefore, number five, they're driven by latest and loudest instead of strategic, intuitive intelligence. Mm-hmm. And you could pick any one of those. And yeah. will fall off. It will, you know, so it makes me think about people who don't get things done when, when I, I like, I'm always stunned by somebody who says this thing is going to take two weeks and I can do that same thing in like two hours or two minutes. Uh, and, and it's, it's, you know, this is a constant battle I have with one of the, my team members where my, I constantly push him to, you know, use much shorter time constraints. And he's like, I can't get it as good as it needs to be if we do that. And, and so, so I wonder, you know, when you look at, somebody's behavior who tends to procrastinate, who doesn't get things done, like where, where, where does that come from? Like, why is it that when somebody can be crystal clear on what the deliverable is and still not deliver? There are probably as many different answers as there are people to that. Yeah. You know, it, 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 you know, take it out to the end and read Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. And you say, that, <laughs> you say the thing that you're avoiding the most is the thing closest to your heart and your soul. That's going to, you, you're actually going to have to freak yourself out by standing up to who you really are. So, you know, mm-hmm. you're going to avoid those. And, you know, for the yeah. most part, practically speaking, a lot of those you're going to avoid is, is you're going to avoid, you know, stopping and thinking about stuff that you need to think about because you're afraid of how many things you might have to think about if you started to think about it. So you don't think about it at all. And then it hangs up. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that's that's a whole whole lot of a big reason people do that. And, you know, the, the, the greatest human fear is a fear of feeling out of control. And any of the, those things I just mentioned will give your, your, your psyche a sense of feeling out of control. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, you didn't wake up this morning and go, God, how can I go be an incompetent jerk today? Right? So <laughs> yeah. you, 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 there's a huge drive to make sure you don't feel bad about how well you're doing anything. And so we tend to mm-hmm. avoid hopping into things unless we feel like we can hop into them successfully right away. That's why the next action thinking, where you get it down to the granularity, as I've described in terms of what the next action thinking is, it's not set meeting. It's called, you know, email to set the meeting or call them to set the meeting. So you need to get very discreet. Once you get down to that discretion, you've now defined what the work is. Then Mm -hmm. those things are easy to do. You've lowered the barrier of entry. So there's no more thinking required. The thinking has been used to already define the trigger. So then you just walk around doing triggers. So you're smart one evening when you make a big plan about the Christmas dinner and you make a great list of all the stuff to do. The next day you wake up, you know, hung over, but you pick up the list from your partner <laughs> and go to the store and still hung over kind of thick and stupid and you do smart stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. what you have to do is, is, you know, thinking is tough and it's, you know, it's, it's quite a resource. So you think to make decisions about what to do, then you, then you, once you get it down to that. So if you haven't decided the next action on your mom's birthday or whether you want to divorce or not, or hiring the VP of marketing, or, you know, whether you should get your kid a dog, if you haven't decided the next action on those things, then you haven't finished your thinking about them. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea with GTD was what do I need to do to finish my thinking about this? So I can relax and let my brain be freed up to make intuitive, intelligent decisions about my options, not to try to remember what the options are 
or figure out what the options are. I've done that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the reflect section, you talk about two types of review, weekly and daily review. And I, I, I wanted to go into the review idea and, and, you know, like, how do you do a review, um, at the end of a day? Uh, how do you suggest other people do it? Like, what does this look like? Well, you need to combine the two. See, basically at the end of the day, I just look at what's coming up in the next day, sometimes the day or two to see how late I can sleep because mm -hmm. I'm a big sleep fan. I like to sleep as long as I can. Uh, so I need to sort of frame what's my hard landscape that I need to engage with tomorrow. So that's what I do first. And I plan as little as I can get by with. You know, basically, you know, once I handle just the, just, you know, just standard stuff I do when I wake up in the morning, you know, drink a, a lemon juice water that cleans my system and, uh, you know, a nice cup of fresh French press coffee, you know, read the front page of the New York Times on my e iPad and now take the dog out if I'm the one or Catherine, whether me or Catherine's one, we have a new puppy. So we uh, take her out from our apartment. So once those are done, then it's like I do what I feel like doing. Mm. Now, that said, that's not just free willy nilly. Because I've done weekly reviews on a fairly consistent basis, I, they, I've sort of hardwired my intuitive intelligence to have a good sense of what's coming up and what are the things that are pressing on me, what's most got my attention, you know, that would be nicest to handle on the day. And, you know, there are two different admonitions about how you set priorities for the day. One is do the hardest thing first. You know, my friend Tony Schwartz, you know, sort of recommended that. So that's a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. you, know, so, you know, go ahead and get the ugly email dealt with. So then you can snack on, you know, on the web or social media the rest of the day you know, as yeah. a reward. Uh, or uh, also a big champion of myself, Joss Whedon. You know, Joss produced Buffy and all the, you know, he's one of the top Hollywood producers. And he says his priority is to, is to pick the most fun thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And so I do both. <laughs> Sometimes I think, what's the most fun thing to do? It kind of gets my juices flowing. And, and I'll, then I get around to the ugly one now that I'm feeling more productive. Yeah. And sometimes I go, let me get the ugly one out of the way just so I can sort of relax and, and enjoy some of the rest of the day in a more relaxed form. So, you know, I don't make any big rules or templates about any of that stuff. So that's, but the weekly review is really critical for that because that, as I say, you know, I think about twice a week, you know, I, I thought, and I'm going to think again, that's enough. Mm -hmm. Now kind of dumb and happy. Yeah. So you had one last piece of this that I want to talk about and what you call the limiting criteria, which you have these four filters, context, time available, energy available, and priority. And I was wondering how, you know, you would think about those in the, in the context of like your, your own life and projects, you know? So for example, like I mentioned to you, I'm working on a book proposal. I'm, you know, planning a conference and I'm running the podcast. So if we were to take those three projects and run them through this filter, how would you do it? Well, you don't run the project through the filter. You run the next actions on those projects through the filter. Gotcha. So what's the next action? And, you know, if the next action is an errand you need to run, that's mm -hmm. different than the next actions are waiting for. That's yeah. different than the next action is something you need to talk to your life partner about. That's different than, so you, you need to get down to the action level. That's where the context comes into play. Mm-hmm. Uh, the otherwise, the other context where you lift up on your horizons, where you say, okay, if you're talking about which of those are your biggest priority, well, I say, well, great. What are you doing with your life? You know, what are the key elements of key aspects of your life? And so we could go up to horizon two, which are the, you know, the, what are the things you need to maintain? You know, with your job description, what are you responsible and accountable to yourself to be doing well? And then you could go up to there and say, well, great. Where do you want to be, you know, two years from now? 
And so which one of these is going to be the most important to make sure you get there? And by the way, what's the vision you have about lifestyle and career five years from now? And so which one of these is going to be the most important for you to move on in terms of the action steps to move forward and move the needle on? And then you can go all the way up to, hey, why are you, why are they frigging on the planet? Mm-hmm. Which one of these is going to fulfill your life purpose the most or the best? So, you know, that's one of the things GTD that I did over these years was recognize how simple could I get? And I couldn't get it any simpler than the six horizons. We have these commitments, purpose, vision, goals, uh, areas of focus and, and responsibility, projects and actions. And those mm-hmm. all have different content. Uh, so it kind of like, which one of those do you need to look at to, for you to decide what you need to do? Hmm. Wow. Wow. Uh, this has been really, really interesting and amazing and thought provoking. Uh, I, you know, I've learned a lot, which is always a, a good sign. And I've learned a lot that I didn't already know, uh, especially as somebody who is obsessed over productivity and, and you know, <laughs> management and stuff. So I was kind of like, okay, I wonder what we're going to talk about. But this has been fascinating. So I have a one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, relax and. Find out what your signature is. What's the unique thing about you that's different from anybody around you? And I think uncovering what your signature is. Everybody has a note. Everybody has a song, essentially, and trying to find out what that is. And what do you need to do to find that? Sometimes, and that's very different for anybody and even for the same person at different times. Sometimes it's rest and relax and do nothing and then see what shows up. Sometimes it's just go, you know, just go crank it, put your shoulder to the wheel and just crank this stuff out, you know, and just exhaust yourself like crazy and then see what shows up. And some, you know, who knows? I just say, pay attention to what has your attention and start to be willing to, you know, follow that call. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story uh, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, uh, and everything else that you're up to? Oh, just gettingthingsdone.com. You know, we've we've now partnered with people all around the world. We're now represented in 70 countries around the world with trainings and coaching based upon this methodology. And we've certified all these master trainers that are doing this. So that's a lot of what my business is now is just supporting these people that are getting this word out. You know, my mission is that we create a world where there are no problems, only projects. Mm. And so, you know, probably not going to see that finished in my lifetime. So I'm still busy. Yeah. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.